All right. Well, um, this quote from John Frame is where we'll begin on the PowerPoint today. Everybody who is converted, everyone who is a Christian, is baptized in the Spirit. There are not two groups in the church, one baptized in the Spirit and the other not. If that were true, it would be a basis for disunity rather than, as Paul says, a basis for unity. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12 that we looked at last week, where he says, All who are in Christ, uh, all of us who are in Christ have been baptized uh, by one Spirit. Okay, and so that is the basis for unity there. Baptism of the uh, Holy Spirit is a basis for unity. We're not a basis of disunity. So if you ever hear somebody saying, uh, yeah, you're a Christian, you just haven't been baptized in the Spirit yet. Say, well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 12 together. All right, that's a good one to remember. Wayne Grudem says, when people become Christians, the Holy Spirit does an initial cleansing work in them making a decisive break with the patterns of sin that were in their lives before. After the initial break with sin, he also produces in us growth and holiness of life. And last week we began to, uh, to look at this idea of sanctification as the Holy Spirit enters into our lives, how he sanctifies us. We, this is again top of page 28. We discussed how believers are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we looked at these passages to make that point. Now, there is a difference between uh, being indwelt and being filled, and we'll look at that momentarily, all right? But believers are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are individually, as Christians, temples of the Holy Spirit. He resides within. That is the uh, way that the New Testament teaches us that as Christians who have been born again, those who have been converted, we are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A passage that is not up there and is not on our sheet, we'll get to it sometime, I'm sure, is Ephesians chapter 4. So you can jot down Ephesians 4.30, where it says that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? We are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, in one sense, the day of redemption's already come, if you're a believer, because you've been redeemed. But on the other hand, we're still waiting, aren't we? What are we waiting for in this life? Okay, Jesus to what? To return, yeah. And what's going to happen to our bodies? Yeah, yeah. we'll be resurrected in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. We'll be made whole, we'll be renewed. That is full, complete redemption. Okay, so we have, you know, the next thing that we're looking forward to is Christ descending. There's the, the shout of the trumpet. He receives us to himself. We meet him in the air. And there's a resurrection for all those who are in Christ. And that is the full redemption we're looking forward to, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, but let's talk about between now and then, what's going to happen with us. So now we reach new content here on the PowerPoint. The indwelling of the Spirit gives power to believers, freeing us from sin and guiding us into all righteousness. Okay, so you can check that blank there on 28. The indwelling of the Spirit gives power to believers. So even before this full redemption that we are awaiting, the resurrection, the coming of Christ, the glorification that we will experience in being totally made new, even before then, in the here and now, 
the indwelling of the Spirit gives us power. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you got power. He said to a thunderous response from the <laughs> congregation, you have, you have power. Okay, John 16, 13. I mentioned it up there, so we might as well check out what that says now instead of waiting till later. Let's go to John 16, 13. I know I told you to go to Ephesians 5, but this is good for you. John 16, and let's have someone read 12 to 15. How about that? John 16, 12 to 15. I'm sure we've looked at it before, but now we're looking at it maybe from another angle, focusing on verse 13. But someone please read for us John 16, verses 12 to 15. Who can read that for us? 16, 12 to 15. All right. Now, so there are lots of places that we can go that show that the Holy Spirit empowers us as Christians. This is actually kind of the start of that conversation. When Jesus says in verse 12, you cannot bear what I have to tell you to his disciples. Right now, you are in a state where you can't bear to hear. But the change in verse 13 is when he, the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all the truth, meaning there's a change in their ability. Before he comes, they cannot bear what, he, or what the truth is of what is to come. That's verse 13. Jesus says he's going to disclose what is to come. So at that point, they couldn't bear it. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he's going to guide them into all the truth. Now, in one sense, there was a special ministry he had with the disciples in that they were able to prophesy, they were able to write scripture because of his ministry among them. So in that sense, they had a special experience with the Holy Spirit that we won't have. Yet at the same time, we're reading what they wrote. And we need to be able to understand that, and that's that doctrine of illumination that we've talked about before, how the Holy Spirit helps us to understand scripture. And also, he guides us into truth too, doesn't he? Through that process. He guided them into all truth, as they were the writers of Scripture, as they were the first Christian preachers, as they were the first leaders of the church, he especially equipped them to lead in the truth. But as people now, 2,000 years removed, who are reading what they wrote, who are reading the truths that he led them into, we too receive the Holy Spirit as he guides us as we study that, that word. That's pretty cool. Lanny? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, now, <laughs> no two... New converts are alike, right? <laughs> Everybody who is a new convert to Christianity brings in different baggage. We all bring baggage. We all bring complicated life experiences into this Christian walk that we have. So that's something to keep in mind, of course, is that not everybody's going to like, be the same. We don't become Christians and become robots and we're like, we believe the Word of God, we will study the Word of God. You know, that, that doesn't happen when we get born again. Well, you bring your personality into Christianity. God, God, he saves your personality, uh, reserves your personality, just sanctifies it, which is a little scary. Maybe some of you think you can't have a sanctified version of your personality, but you can, all right? And so um, the way people articulate how they feel about the Bible or how they think about the Bible now, that changes, grows, develops over time. But what we're promised is that there will be that fruit, you will know a tree by its fruit, whether we're talking about false teachers, which is the context of that in Matthew 7, or we're talking about Christians, the fruit of the Spirit will be there. And an aspect of the Spirit's ministry in our lives is to give us a love for the truth. That is an evidence that someone has been born again. 
And when you don't see that over the course of time in someone's life, when that person has made a a profession of faith, that is grounds for saying, let's go back and revisit the gospel, because I'm not sure if if you really believe and you have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, so we have to be careful with the idea of looking for evidence, because God has not called anybody to be the fruit inspector of someone else's life, right? Um, So we just have to be careful. And I'm not saying we put blinders on and pretend like there shouldn't be any fruit. But we just have to be careful in uh, doing that because what inevitably happens is we create our own standards as to how sanctified a person should be to give legitimate evidence that that person has been legitimately born again. And it becomes man-made in a hurry. But yes, there should be a desire for righteousness, uh, now, the success rate on that, again, is going to vary, just as there are many different Christians out there with various struggles and various experiences, there will be various success. But that desire to obey has to be there. And if that's not there, and, and the, the willingness to follow Christ, again, not, not measuring their success in that, but the willingness to do it, uh, that has to be there. Because if that's not there, yeah, then you start wondering, yeah, what's going on in your heart? Let's talk about the gospel again. Well, here's the deal. You're not all-knowing. <laughs> well, you can't condemn someone in the sense that God does, and you can't exalt someone in the sense that God does. However, you are living in this world with a mind that God has given you, and you're called to respond to the people around you appropriately. So we can't pretend like um, everybody we bump into is born again, and we can't bump or we can't uh, pretend like everyone we bump into is condemned. Okay, we had that we we realize there are some people who are saved and some people who are not. We, as far as it depends on us, in the stewardship of our relationships and how we communicate the gospel, we have to make the appropriate decisions on how, where we think a person is spiritually, and that can be extremely difficult because it. it the easy ones are like, hey, I'm an atheist, you know, I don't believe God exists at all. Okay, well, let's deal with that. Or someone says, I just love the Lord. This morning I was reading Leviticus 27, and I got so much out of it, and I want to share with you like that. And it's like, oh, well, that's potentially telling me something about on the other end of the spectrum here, you know. There are so many in between, right, that you, people you talk to and, and you just don't know. It, but it never hurts to go back to the gospel, So while you do that, you're not saying, hey, I believe you're going to hell. So let me share with you the gospel again. That's probably not the way I would do that, okay? Um, But but it's never wrong to say, let's go back and talk about the gospel, because there are these one or two things that are concerning me a bit, and God knows your heart. I don't know your heart like God does. Can, Can we talk about the gospel a little bit and just see what you think? That's very appropriate to do that. No, no, totally not wrong. It's just the recognition that we aren't going to have the certainty that God has with that person. You just can't. Uh, there are so many people that we work with that, you know, on the first day you meet them, like, okay, that person's clearly not a Christian, but that person seems interested. Fast forward 10 years, and that person's like a leader in the church serving and has a faithful, consistent testimony. At what point in there did that person actually get born again? Sometimes they know the exact moment. Sometimes they don't. And that can be really frustrating for that person sometimes. But that doesn't delegitimize their salvation at all, uh, especially for children who grow up in a Christian home. Uh, my, my children, for example, are going to have a very similar experience to my wife, who grew up in a Christian home, who 
seemed like at four years old understood and believed the gospel. And yet at 12 years old had a different type of conviction that led to a, a more, I don't know, a, a deeper profession of faith. Was she saved at four or was she saved at 12? The Lord knows. I just know she's saved now, and I'm happy with that, right? I mean, as, as far as I can tell, she's saved now, right? Uh, again, I don't have God's certainty with that. Only God has that absolute certainty. But you just got to be content with that. But it never, yeah, like you said, it never hurts to go back and to pursue clarification, but not to the point of making someone question everything either. That's the thing. You don't want to pester somebody who is a true convert and talk them out of their profession of faith. That's very dangerous ground. So we just have to be really, really tactful, really careful with that. And that's why, you know, it's best to just focus on the gospel and let the Lord work through that, right? That, that's, that's our goal. Um, it's kind of like uh, how bank tellers are trained, at least they used to be. I don't know how much cash bank tellers uh, deal with anymore. But they used to be trained, the way you spot counterfeits is to master the original. If you just master what the original looks like, any kind of counterfeit will stand out. And so our goal is to, of course, master the gospel, knowing that most important message. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It is of first importance. And so that way, if anything comes up, no matter who we're dealing with, that goes counter to that, we can say, no, wait a second, that's different than what the Bible says. And let me show you that. Um, and all the other particulars, that can be dealt with later. Gospel has to be of first importance. So with that person, it's, um, it is going back to the gospel, of course, reviewing what, what we've been called to believe in order to be saved. There is, uh, in Acts 4.12, there's only one name given under heaven by which men can be saved. So we go back and we say, yeah, I'm glad you're concerned about this because this is so important. And we go through the gospel, and if that person says, the child says, yeah, I believe that. It's not our job to talk them out of that, okay? It's our job to foster that, as their parents especially, uh, to, to foster the profession that's there. Even as four-year-old of a profession, it might seem, you know, right? Uh, they're not going to be articulate at four years old. And, and I think it's, it's very appropriate as they age to help them to memorize the assurance passages too. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ. And uh, we're sealed until the day of redemption, you know, that I mentioned earlier. A, a bunch of passages like that where we can help them memorize those and uh, feel fortified in the faith rather than constantly questioning it. And, and that is a tension point uh, that all Christian parents have. Uh, we cannot save our children. We cannot have any kind of, uh, again, certainty like God does about their future, about you know, what, what they actually believe now. So all we can do is take the, these good signs as they come up and use them as opportunities to help them to grow in the faith. Okay? All right, let's uh, keep moving here. Sanctification is not so much a work of the believer as it is a submission to the work of God. Okay, so this is important <clears throat> to recognize because some people, when we start thinking about sanctification, will, will think, okay, God did all the work in saving us. Now it's our turn to do the work until we die. <laughs> That's not Exactly it, okay? Now, um, we will get to this in the soteriology section when we study salvation. We will get in-depth on sanctification about how we can best understand that this process works and how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Uh, there's a great passage in Colossians, no, Philippians 2, 
Yeah, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, I believe, where it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That's sanctification. And the very next verse says, because it is God who is at work in you. He's willing and working in you to help you to work out your salvation. So there's a both and aspect to this. It's not like you get sanctified by just jumping up into the air and the wind of the Holy Spirit carries you to, to your death. Okay, that's not it. But at the other, on the other side of it, it's not that, okay, God's given you your list of things to do. Get to work. Make yourself more Christ-like. That's not it either. All right? This is a work of God. Sanctification is. If we have anything to boast about in this life, it's, we're boasting of God's work in us. We're not boasting in our own work. Uh, one of the uh, great prayers from church history that I like is this prayer that uh, we ask God when he looks at us to see his work in us and not our own. Because if he sees ours, there's basis for condemnation. But if he sees his own, there's basis for exaltation. And so we're, what we're doing is submitting to the work of God as the Holy Spirit is in us, willing and working, conforming us to the image of Christ. So let's look at this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. And after we examine this passage, uh, I'll pause again for thoughts and questions. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll actually go all the way to 21, 15 to 21. And I want us to examine 18 in particular, which is right there in the middle. But would someone read for us Ephesians 5, 15 to 21? Who could read that for us? Right. Great passage. If believers are permanently indwelt by the Spirit, why is there a command, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit? This is an imperative, meaning it is a command. Do not get drunk with wine, that is dissipation, debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Hmm, what are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm, right. Yeah, they are different words in the Greek, okay? This word for indwelt or um, who dwells in you, that was that Second Timothy passage, I think, that we looked at last week. But you don't always get the word indwelt in there. Like in, uh, uh, I think, 1 Corinthians 6, it doesn't say dwells. Maybe it does, but it says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you get the same idea without the specific word. So you have indwelt, and then you have uh, this concept of filling. Now, we see that this indwelling is uh, permanent, and it has to do with the sealing. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Whereas with filling, it's an impermanent thing. Is that the right prefix. We'll, I'll pretend like it is. So like this, uh, this marker that I'm using, this is not a permanent marker. Not a permanent marker. Uh, and it can be uh, undone and put back on the board. Okay? But it's an impermanent thing. And that has to do with, a, with our submission aspect. Because it's a command, we see that there's something that we are doing here that... Uh, we can either obey or disobey this command to be filled. And, but it is passive, right? We don't fill ourselves. The command isn't, fill yourselves up with the Holy Spirit. The command is to 
passively be filled from without the Holy Spirit. Yet he's also within, okay? <laughs> but you, you do not become uh, the Holy Spirit when you get saved. He is a distinct person from you, and he indwells you permanently, but you are empowered by him or filled with him on an impermanent basis. And you know this because you still sin, how could you sin when you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Well, that's because you're not always yielding to Him, are you? If He is the one, if God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure, why do you still sin? Well, that's because it's still your obligation, your responsibility to submit to the working of God in your heart. And when you're doing that, I think the way James explained it was perfect. When you have the influence in your life, being God, truth, His Word, holiness. When you have that coming in, there will be an effect on the way that you live. When you're avoiding all of those things, that's going to show too, isn't it? Right? That's going to show too. And so we just uh, need to not make this too complicated, but recognize that an aspect of our sanctification and a major aspect of our relationship with the Holy Spirit is being filled with Him, meaning yielding to His guidance, yielding to the fruit that He's working through us. Okay? The command of 1 Thessalonians 5.19 is similar. Our command is to submit to God and to ask Him to control our thoughts and our actions, that He would guide us into all truth. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it's a very simple verse. It says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. There's that, uh, that drink Gatorade that markets itself as thirst quencher. Do they still market themselves that way, Dean? Thirst quencher? That was like their big thing for a long time. So it takes away our, our thirst by providing, you know, sugary stuff that you tell yourself is good for you when you're sweating. And uh, that is this idea that it's, ta it's taking away the thirst. Well, we are not to quench the Spirit, meaning we're not to... Uh, take out his influence from our lives. But instead, we're to receive his influence, to submit to his influence, and to ask him to guide, direct us, help us to understand the word of God, help us to apply the word of God, that we would be filled with him and not anything else. You'll start speaking in tongues. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. How do you know when you are filled? Um, that, yeah, that can be very tricky, kind of like with, uh, it's kind of like answering, how does a four or five-year-old know, know if he's saved? That's tough. Uh, because there's so much that we just don't understand about the workings of God. It is. Sometimes we know we're on the downward slide. At what point are we unfilled, <laughs> right? And then sometimes we know we're on the upward climb. How do we know when we're filled again? Um, we can know, if we define the, the extremes, I think that helps. We know that we are, when we are in sin, in thought, word, or deed, we are not filled with the Spirit. We are quenching the Spirit. The command, do not quench the Spirit. We're disobeying that command at, at that time because He would never lead us into sin. So we know that. On the other end, when um, something is done or something happens in our lives through us, it's, we recognize it's a work of God through us, that glorifies and honors God, that's the work of the Spirit. Okay, we don't look at that and say, man, I did a great job. 
bringing fruit in my life. We look back and we say, God used me for something there. Um, I would say that would qualify as being filled with the Spirit. Now, most of our lives, of course, are lived in between those two extremes. And uh, I would say a safe place to land would be just constantly bear in mind uh, the reality of God. Bring the reality of God to bear on your life in thought, word, and deed. Now, um, that can sound overwhelming, right? But at the same time, isn't that the goal? I heard a, a man who's been a Christian for a long time say that his prayer life is just like a never-ceasing conversation with God. I would think that would help you to remain filled with the Spirit. I mean, our goal should be living with the constant awareness of the reality of God in every aspect of life. Yeah, it is. It, I mean, yeah, we certainly don't want to paint the picture like this it has something to do with anything other than faith. It is walking by faith, not by sight. It's walking in the light as he is in the light. All that, yeah. Very good. Any other thoughts on Ephesians 5? I'll pause there before we go to the next. Yeah, another way to, to phrase that verse, uh, a way of paraphrasing it to interpret it, would be do not be controlled by alcohol, but instead be put under the control of the Spirit of God. So much of it has to do with just control. And put yourself under the uh, controlling influence of God the Spirit instead of this substance that makes you inebriated. Right. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If someone has that view of, well, I'm saved, I'm indwelt by the Spirit, so it doesn't matter what I do now, that's one of those signs where it's like, oh, let's go back to the gospel and talk about that, right? Because we were saved, <laughs> the New Testament tells us we were saved for good deeds. In, in Titus chapter 3, God washed, regenerated us. The Spirit entered our hearts to do that, that work in our hearts. That God would set apart a people for himself for good works. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we often quote that as we should. It's a good memory passage. But the very next verse, verse 10, says that God prepared works beforehand that we would do them, that we would walk in them. The point of our salvation is to lead us into this life of sanctification. Absolutely. Lanny? <laughs> okay, that's all right. No sweat. Any other thoughts on Ephesians 5 before we go to Galatians 6? Galatians 5, I mean? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah and I think it's appropriate to pray for that too, to pray that God would show us. We all have blind spots. For God to show us that, to convict us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Galatians 5, let's go there. 16 to 24, nine verses. Would someone read that for us? Galatians 5, 16 to 24. Who's got that for us? All right. A lot there. But if you were to sum it up, what does this passage say about the Spirit's work in our sanctification? And maybe, I don't know, summing it up, there's, that's a lot of pressure to put on you. What are just some bullet points you can pull out of there about what the Holy Spirit is doing in our sanctification? Conviction, right? I mean, aren't we so thankful for the conviction of God that He convicts us by the power of His Spirit, not just generally of sin, though that is a, an aspect of it, but also specifically convicts us of sin, right? That, I mean, my sin life, 
which I hate to phrase it that way, but meaning the sins I still commit, are going to be different from the next person's, next Christian's. When we're convicted of sin, God is so personal through the Holy Spirit that he convicts us of our personal experiential sins. And that is a sign of life. It hurts. We don't enjoy it. It is embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, just list it all off. But praise God for it. Praise God that he convicts us of that, that we would repent and grow in godliness. Joe. You can't enjoy love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Isn't that where real joy is found? Yeah. We still have fun around here, don't we? Yeah. But uh, sin is fun for a moment. Sin robs you. Sin kills you. Sin leaves you empty. Sin uses you. So you have that high. I mean, it's just kind of like, like doing drugs. You, you get that good feeling because you got to gratify the desires of your flesh. But then you have to wake up the next day. And do you feel satisfied? No, you don't. And that's even for unbelievers, right? Not just for Christians. Even for non-Christians. Sin will never satisfy the heart. And that's the difference. That's the big difference. Yeah, if we are in our right mind looking at such a list... Would you rather live with someone who has frequent outbursts of anger or live with someone who's patient? <laughs> well, that's pretty obvious. Now, would you rather, think of that really annoying person in your life. Would you rather go off on that person in an outburst of anger or be patient with that person? Ha! Huh. How about that do unto others stuff, right? That's where the rubber meets the road. It is the will of God that we be sanctified. I love 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It just says plainly, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. What a great verse. And this fruit is central to Christian living. We get characterized sometimes, those of us who believe in the biblical gospel, we get characterized sometimes as people who say, well, believe in Jesus, get your fire insurance, and hands off, you know, hey, just say, pray the prayer, sign the card, off you go. That is not the Christian gospel, okay? The Christian gospel is that God is redeeming his enemies, making them his children. He's adopting children into his family, that we would know him and walk with him all of our days, that we would live a life of progressively being conformed to Christ and one day being totally redeemed by him whenever we are uh, redeemed at his resurrection, our bodies are redeemed. That it's this big picture of what God is doing in the world. It's not, uh, hey, I see that hand back there. You believe the gospel, you know, and, and we put a tally on the sheet and say you're saved and we'll never talk to you again. That is not the biblical gospel. Have people gotten saved through that? Yes, because God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line, can he? Uh, so people can get saved in that way. But that is um, an underselling of what Christianity is. Christianity is being a people set apart for God for his own glory. And it begins in the here and now. Keith Lambert says, When we obey, that is the fruit of the work of the Spirit, not due to our own moral effort. That's a good summary statement. When we obey God, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not due to our own effort. So even though we have to participate, as we've been saying, 
you have to cooperate with God here. You have these commands given to you. When there's fruit that comes about, when there's obedience that comes through your life, who gets all the glory for that? So you don't, you don't get credit. It's God's work. So it should be for those who love God, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so often I think we uh, don't see our own progress. We see it in other people's lives more. <laughs> because we, we can be a little judgy and we can think, ah, that person has you know, a lot of growing to do. We can think that sometimes. And then we see growth in that person. And then we think, wow, that is amazing. That's the work of God. And when we see that, we should encourage people with that, by the way. Send them a text, talk to them in church, give them a phone call, write them a note. Just say, I've, I've seen what God's been up to in your life, and it's so encouraging. The Lord is at work in you. I mean, how would you feel if you got a note like that? Yeah, right? It would probably help with your assurance uh, and all kinds of stuff. So send those kinds of notes to people, okay? And it, it's very encouraging. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew from their biblical doctrine. The chief characteristic of one's salvation and subsequent sanctification is an ongoing, habitual, growing obedience to God's work, word that is empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit who controls the lifestyle of a true Christian. Good. Another good summary statement. A little bit longer of a statement there. I think that's the end. It is. Oh, and now it does that. Okay. Um, so any thoughts, questions on that uh, lesson as a whole before I uh, do a little bit of review with you in the time that we have left? Thoughts, questions on the Holy Spirit's role in our sanctification? What is it? Uh, I think it's Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Uh, we are to boast in the Lord alone. That we will make our boast in God alone. Because any wisdom you have, any growth that you have, it's all from God. It's not from yourself. You are not a self-watering plant. <laughs> Those would be nice to have sometimes, though, wouldn't they? Uh, but that's not what you are. Okay? Well, let's review this section just for a few minutes. I thought we'd have uh, some more time for review, but uh, I'm glad we had the conversation we did today. That was good. Let me just ask you a few review questions. If you have your notes, this is going back to page 24. So pages 24 to 28 is what we'll be uh, reviewing just briefly. And uh, I'll ask you just what I think are pretty basic questions, starting with, who is the Holy Spirit? Okay. And those persons are each? Okay. Meaning each one is God. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. The Holy Spirit is God. He is uh, a person of the Trinity, the triune God. That is yeah, just critically important that you start there in this conversation because many people have many different ideas of what the Holy Spirit is. Knowing that, that the Holy Spirit is God, how should we refer to the Holy Spirit in our speech? Okay, good. So we respect his personhood by referring to him as a he. We respect him as God in showing reverence. The, the fear of the Lord applies to the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's not like when it says fear God, you are to 
fear of the Father, but then the Holy Spirit's your buddy who jokes around with you and doesn't care about holiness. His name is the Holy Spirit, after all. And so uh, the fear of the Lord pertains to Him just as it does to the Father and to the Son. If you have page 24 in front of you, this will be much easier. Uh, Name a passage that shows that He is God. A passage that shows that the Holy Spirit is God. Hebrews 9. And what does it say there about the Holy Spirit that shows that He is God? Hebrews 9.14. He's eternal. Is there anyone who is eternal but God alone? No. No, no, no. Very good. Let's get one or two more passages. What's another one? All right, Acts 5. What's Acts 5 about? All right. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God, is what the apostles say. Very good. One more, one more passage that shows the Holy Spirit is God. What did you, you say, John 3? Job. Oh, Job. Yeah, what does it say? Job 33. Good. The Spirit of the Lord God created me. What an amazing verse. All right. So those are just three. There are several more that we could look at, um, but those are three very important ones. Good job. Good job. If you uh, look at 25 now, what would we say the role of the Holy Spirit was in the formation of the Bible? Good. So let's uh, consider inspiration. That's what that first section has to do with is inspiration. What is inspiration? What did the Holy Spirit do to inspire the authors of Scripture? What did the Holy Spirit do to inspire the authors of Scripture? So we could say simply, He inspired the authors of Scripture. But of course, what does inspire mean? All right, so let's define that. Yes. So we believe in verbal Plenary inspiration. Did I give you guys that in your notes? I don't know if I gave you that exact term. But verbal, of course, just means words. I cannot spell the word words for some reason. There we go. Words. And plenary just simply means all. All the words of Scripture were given to the authors by the Holy Spirit. Did they become drones when they wrote Scripture then? Secretaries, okay. Yeah, so he inspired all the words of Scripture while maintaining their personalities. Okay, that's an aspect of what we talked through there. That when you read Paul, it sounds like Paul. You read John, it sounds like John. You read Luke, it sounds like Luke. Uh, because their personalities were still reserved in there. What about illumination? Inspiration and illumination are different. How would you explain the Holy Spirit's work in illumination? So inspiration applied to only a select few, the writers of Scripture. Does he inspire all your words? (laughs) Have you ever written a letter where all the words were inspired? No, you haven't. No, no, no. However, does he help you understand the words that were inspired? Yes, that's the doctrine of illumination. Yeah, just keep it basic. You don't need to get too detailed. Um, since we already went through it. On 27, now, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Very good. Yeah, the regeneration, the born-again experience, uh, as Joanna said, it doesn't involve water. The Holy Spirit does not baptize us in water. John baptized with water, but the disciples were told they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When Jesus was about to uh, descend, they were taught those things and they remembered Jesus' teaching. Yeah, yeah, we are immersed into into Christ. You know, Paul uses that phrase all the time. You are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Well, how'd you get there? The Holy Spirit put you there, right? So that's the baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit. Is there any initial sign of being baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, what's the difference, Joanna? Okay, yeah, so now there are people who are in Christ who have not spoken tongues. Right? Uh, but then God used, sign, or used uh, the sign of tongues to communicate to the disciples, particularly not just with the Jews, that they were now uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and filled with the Holy Spirit, starting in Acts 2 at Pentecost. But later, when Gentiles received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues, that they too were a part of God's family. Lainey? Yeah. Yes. Yes, so that, yeah, that's important to point out that we're not saying that the uh, being baptized with the Holy Spirit experience is altogether different from the first century. When the first Christians were converted and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, they received the assurance of salvation. They had a profession of faith. They began to have the fruit of the Spirit come forth in their lives. They were given spiritual gifts to use. All of those things we have in common. Uh, But that initial miraculous sign of tongues, of course, has changed. What was the Holy Spirit's role in your conversion? If you were to sum that up, looking at page 27 there, what was the Holy Spirit's role in your conversion? Surely you wouldn't say he had no part in your conversion, huh? Laney? So he helped you to um, experience something, the reality of Christ. What else? Mm. So he starts breaking those patterns, those habits of sin. And isn't it funny how some things go like that and other things just stink and drag out? My dad's a great example of that because my dad was uh, a drunk my whole life. And then when he got saved, the Lord just took away the desire for alcohol. And I know that's not the case for many people, but for my dad, it was just, boop, gone. He left the beer in the fridge as a memorial. Didn't, wasn't tempted to touch it. I mean, he was drinking like four or five cases a week. He drank so much. And it was, he was just done. But smoking, on the other hand, which he also did, that took... Several years, and really the straw that broke the camel's back was he got um, married to the woman he's married to now, and she's a Christian woman, and she said no smoking in the house, and one of those Missouri winters rolled around, and that did the trick. So, uh, yeah, uh, isn't that funny, Joe? 
Did you have a thought in there? Yes, I think that's a, that's a great answer. I have the same testimony from my conversion where I went to, I, I moved next door to a Bible church when I was four or five years old. Never attended. At 16 years old, I started dating a girl that went there. So then I started attending, right? Uh, but I liked it. So even after we weren't dating anymore, I still kept, I kept going. It was right there next to my house. And then it was just a few months after that that there was a tragedy in my life, and I came to the point of believing for the first time. But all of that was of God putting me in that spot. I have to look back and say that's a work of God. Okay, very good. Well, next week um, is my last Sunday before the sabbatical, and we're going to do something a little different. Joanna had a good idea to just do a, a Bible Q&A time. I don't have a, really a preference. If you prefer a more thorough answer, send your questions ahead of time. But you can ask me stuff on the spot. Uh, write down questions that you have, Bible Q&A. It could be about this class anywhere through these notes where you have had a thought and you're like, oh, I don't really know what that was about. I, I'm still confused on that. Bring those kind of questions. If you have a general Bible question, let's do a Bible Q&A time because I don't want to start something uh, one Sunday and then be gone for a month. And yeah, you'll forget everything from that one Sunday. So uh, that's what we'll do next week is a Q&A time like that, okay?